If I haven't stepped in it already this morning, uh, I have the potential of doing it now. And of all the hard things that I have said from the scriptures over the last 16 years to this church, um, today might be uh, one of the the hardest things that I might say to a, a whole group of different people. And as I've told you before, I... I have never come to the pulpit with the intention of offending anyone or making anyone mad at me. What do you know? I really don't like people to be upset with me. Uh, But as one preacher said, I I mentioned it the other day, that I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. And this is something something that is heavy upon the hearts of myself and the elders in regard to the way that uh, our church functions in the ministry. And uh, so I want to address that this morning. And, uh, I, and if, if whether you allow me to say hard things or not, I'm going to say them. And I don't ever want to be afraid to say what the scriptures say. Amen? And um, so anyway, if you would stand up uh, and let's pray together. Again, if I say something this morning that um, you disagree with, Please be mature enough uh, to come and speak with me, speak with one of my elders. Um, I'm pretty sure we're on the same page on this. Um, I think they're aware of what I'm going to say, but whatever. Let's say what the scriptures say, amen? All right, Father, we love you. And uh, Lord, uh, because of your word, I'm convinced that the most important role is fatherhood. And of course, in conjunction with motherhood. But Lord, I, I also know that our, even the church, along with our culture, has been busy emasculating our men, our fathers, and providing for them an identity that is foreign to the identity that their creator has assigned to them, has given to them. And Lord, I want to encourage, I want to restore um, in the hearts and minds of fathers what the scriptures say. Because there's nothing more manly than a husband who leads his wife and a father who trains his children in the admonition of the Lord. And um, so, Lord, I just pray that you would give me the ability to communicate your heart uh, from the text of your word. And, uh, Lord, that we as a fellowship would grow closer to your ideals, your vision for us. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So as you know, we've recently uh, finished the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you're new this morning, it's our custom here, our conviction to go through a book of the Bible at a time, treating it verse by verse, treating it carefully, giving our attention to it, and then by the Holy Spirit, uh, living according to what the scriptures teach. Um, So, but today, uh, as you can see on the screen, that's not the content of Matthew chapter 8, which follows the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Yeah. This morning, I wanted to take a break. I think that from the sermon to the narrative is a good place to take a break and uh, reaffirm one of the primary visions of our church, which is family discipleship, which primarily falls to Uh, fathers. But I wanted to begin by sharing a real struggle that I have in my heart regarding Sunday school. Because I believe, I know historically, and 
and statistically that it competes with fathers and their responsibility in the home. When I think of Sunday school, I would like to either provide the best Sunday school program the world has ever seen, or I'd like to provide the worst Sunday school program the world has ever heard of. You're thinking, well, Pastor Ben, I can see why you'd want to provide the best Sunday school program in the world, but why in the world would you want to provide the absolute worst? Well, I would want to provide the worst Sunday school program in the world in order to break an unbiblical habit that has formed over many generations in the church and in our fathers. The habit of the church has been to usurp the authority and responsibility of the fathers to disciple their children in their home. And the habit of fathers has been to surrender their authority to the church by having the church disciple their children for them. Biblically, this is backwards. It's, it's crazy. Sunday school as a method for discipling children is unbiblical. By unbiblical, I do not mean to say that Sunday school is contrary to the scriptures or that in itself it violates the scriptures. I'm saying that it's nowhere to be found in the scriptures. God has not commissioned the church to disciple children. And because of that, some questions come to mind. The first one is, how did a ministry that cannot be found on the pages of scripture become the top priority for most churches? Sometimes the largest budget, using up the largest number of volunteers, is Sunday school. How did a ministry without a shred of biblical support become the number one deciding factor for parents choosing which church they would attend? Why do we care so much about a ministry that didn't exist in the church until about 150 years ago? And if it's so important, why didn't God give us directions for it? By what authority, what, by what divine directive did the church become responsible for the discipleship of children who have Christian parents? And why are we so committed to a ministry that is so ineffective? I'll have to explain myself with that. For the church to usurp the authority for our fathers, of our fathers, without biblical authority to do so is, is both ungodly, it's reprehensible. Just as it's ungodly and reprehensible for fathers to surrender their authority to the church. You see, the habit of the church mingled with the habits of the fathers has created some really bad fruit that has proven to be dangerous for our children and for society. You see, wherever you find great Sunday school programs, you find fathers who feel less compelled to fulfill their biblical responsibility to disciple their own children in the home. They feel like the church has it handled, but they do not, no matter how good the Sunday school program is. And wherever you find these Sunday school programs, you find fathers who believe that it's the church's biblical responsibility to bring up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord. They believe that it's the church's duty to educate their children in the scriptures and to teach them how to live the Christian life. And so when parents with young children and teenagers look for a church, they make their primary decision based upon the Sunday school program and the youth ministry, which is a very strange and unbiblical standard. But I understand. The church over the last hundred years or so has communicated to fathers that the church is the real expert in training and admonishing their children. The church has inadvertently usurped the father's authority, which the church can find no justification for in the scriptures. Even though the scriptures are the very thing the church is to derive its authority and instruction from. 
And less than 200 years ago, the church started providing them this ministry that cannot be found in the Bible. And then bit by bit, parents have relied upon the church more and more for what they as parents are supposed to be doing. And really, the church is looking more and more like the government. And parents are looking more and more like people on government subsidy. And it's robbing them of their responsibility to disciple their own children. And here's, here's the facts on the ground. More and more children are looking to other sources for authority and truth. And so today, the norm is for parents to turn their children over to the church's Sunday school program to ensure that children are being discipled in the faith and less and less parents fulfilling their responsibility while more and more children are leaving the faith and most of them will never return. The vast majority of all children raised in Sunday school are leaving the church and they're never coming back. This is how this works. If we abandon God's method and his means for accomplishing his goals, we will and we are suffering the consequences for it. Fact. That's just the way it works. The reality is the church is not reaching the world for Christ and we're not passing the faith on to our children. If you'd like to read two books on this subject, they're titled Already Gone and Jumping Ship. Already Gone and Jumping Ship. They both discuss the haunting reality that the majority of all children are leaving the faith and they're never coming back. Something is wrong. And then with the advent of social media, things are getting worse at an exponential rate. And both fathers and the church are to blame. And fathers for not doing their due diligence to study the scriptures, to know what their responsibility is, and then performing those duties in the home. And the church is to blame for usurping patriarchal authority and for not instructing fathers concerning their duty to their children. Both need to repent. Both need to repent. And the only way for the church to repent is to instruct fathers regarding their biblical duties in the home. And once we've effectively done that, we can more fully expect fathers to repent by being faithful to their children. So listen, my heart's desire is to spend less time training other people's children and spend more time teaching, encouraging, and educating parents on what their biblical role is and how to unpack those things in the context of their home. In other words, I would like to disciple parents to disciple their kids. And that is something that I have a lot of biblical authority, tons of it. And you guys, I don't believe there's any church like ours that can do that. Honestly, we have the resources and we have the experienced people to help others excel in family discipleship. We have the resources and we have the experienced people. But let me share more clearly my, the conflict in my heart, some questions. In light of where we're at with everything, is there a version of Sunday school that could coexist with family discipleship that would complement, not usurp or take over, but complement what parents are doing every day in the home? Or... Will Sunday school always influence fathers to relinquish their duties to their children? I don't know the answer to this. Should I provide a quality Sunday school program for children with parents who won't disciple their kids and then try to disciple those parents until they stop relying on Sunday school? But then, I mean, what do we do with fathers who refuse to obey the scriptures in regard to family discipleship? Do I put them under church discipline for disobeying Christ? That sounds like a lot of fun for everyone. Okay. Or do I completely abolish Sunday school and just provide training and instruction for parents so they can better disciple their children? Or do I throw out the baby with the bathwater? Another question that I have is, what if younger kids come to our church without their parents? Will they be interested in our main service? Can we reach them without a Sunday school? But statistically, Sunday schools aren't reaching children anyway. So what difference would that make? 
How did the church reach children so effectively 200 years ago without Sunday school? I'm a bit conflicted. Can you tell? And then, you know, there's the monster that Sunday school is anyway. The staffing, recruiting, the scheduling, the endless no-shows, the replacements, the curriculum, the tech, the sign-in, the sign-out, and on and on it goes. I'm conflicted. Is, is Sunday school the best way to use the church's people and resources, especially when children raised in Sunday school are leaving the faith in droves? And mind you, this is not the fault of Sunday school teachers who only get to influence children for one hour at church out of the 168 hours in a week. Think about that. If they're not getting any training at home, really, as the scriptures define training, family discipleship, the whole week, they're getting one hour a week. How do they compete with the world? How do they compete with anything else? Especially public school kids. They get one hour of Sunday school, and they get the rest of the week in public school with, <clears throat> without God, with secular ideologies and philosophies. That's tough, yeah. You know, we have Sunday school teachers here in our church who are amazing teachers. Some of you have heard them teach. And I'd love for my children to even hear them teach. But the exodus of children from the church is no fault of theirs. Another question is, how do we measure success when it comes to Sunday school? You know, the Bible measures success by faithfulness to the scriptures alone. Just by faithfulness. We, we, we like to measure uh, biblical success by converts. Um, if, if, if we use that as the standard, then Jeremiah the prophet was the worst. You get it? No, but God believed that Jeremiah was faithful or, or successful because he was faithful to the command of God. How do we measure success when it comes to Sunday school? Sunday school is not a biblical model for discipleship. So there's no biblical way to measure faithfulness in regard to Sunday school. And the global fruit of Sunday school is not good fruit. We do have to judge things by its fruit. I mean, we have to. Wisdom is known by her children. That is, the wisdom of any course of action is revealed by its product. And the product of Sunday school over the last hundred years is, is bad fruit. There's no other way to say it. I mean, biblical knowledge is at an all-time low in America. How did that happen with all of our Sunday school programs? I'm conflicted. The elders and I are praying, and I want you to pray with us. But regardless of how conflicted I am about that issue, I need to still bring the instruction of God's word to all of God's people. And it's interesting, that's actually the model we see in the scriptures. Whenever the people of God gathered together for corporate worship and for the teaching of the word, everyone was together. Grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, children, down to the babies, all together. Here's one example in the scriptures. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God, in the place which he chooses, speaking of Jerusalem where the temple would be, he says, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, all together, everyone together for the reading and teaching of the word. Now, there were other meetings where very small children were not present. We find that in Nehemiah 8. But those small children weren't in Sunday school. They were with their parents. So how did their children learn the scriptures? The fathers. That's how they learned. Some say, well, what about the mothers? Were they just baby makers and incubators? Well, if you consult our culture and their view of the church, that's exactly what they would say. But that's not in any way biblical. In the scriptures, mothers are <laughs> a powerful companion. 
to their husbands in advancing the vision of God for humanity. Amen, mothers? Yeah. Fathers have headship, but mothers are co-equal to their husbands in every other way. Amen? Men created in the masculine image of God and women created in the feminine image of God, co-equal in all things, in personhood, value, and dignity. The difference between us is authority, is headship. That's it. That's by God's design. It's by God's wisdom and choosing. For the rest of our time together, I would like to provide a survey of the scriptures to demonstrate God's will for family discipleship and hopefully draw some convictions from it. I'd like to begin in Genesis where God isolated one man to whom he would reveal himself to. That man is Abraham. And you can try to keep up with me as I go from one passage to the next. Um, I don't know how much time this will require, but I can't wait too long for you. Okay. You'll just have to trust that I have the actual text on the screen there. I assure you I copied and pasted from my Bible software. Genesis 18, 18, you know, it's the story that, you know, God and these angels are making their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what for, right? Just as he's making his way to planet Earth very soon for the same exact reason, right? But engaging with one another, the Lord with the angels, he says, I, for I have known him, Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now, oftentimes you'll see this business about God knowing people, okay? And it has everything to do with choosing them for his purposes, okay? And that's what comes out in the text. God says, I have known him in order that. God knew Abraham in order that he would command his children for God's multi-generational purpose. And those purposes here are to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness, to do justice, to be judicious. Now, the historical context in all of this is important because the way of the Lord is something of progressive revelation in the scriptures. Uh, Not all of God's will was revealed at one time, but progressively throughout history until he closed what we call the canon of scripture, Genesis to Revelation, okay? But at the time of Abraham, there was actually very little revelation. There was no Bible. Think about that. Abraham had no Bible to learn the ways of the Lord. What he had was, he had personal revelation from God himself in Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17. Of course, here in 18, and there's a few more things, but there's no written revelation. Now, some suspect there might be a written history of the world up to this point. Some believe it may have been handed down from Noah and finally to Abraham, but the Holy Spirit had not yet compiled and verified an official record. It's actually going to be another 400 years before God gives the law to Abraham's grandchildren through the mediation of Moses. So the ways of the Lord at this point had not yet been fully revealed, but Abraham was responsible for living according to the knowledge God gave him, as we said, through personal revelation, Then also, as Paul says in Romans 1 and 2, through creation and conscience, and he was responsible for passing that on to his kids. Now, but today, seeing that we have the totality of God's revelation in the Bible, we are accountable to all that is revealed in it. Much more is expected of us than was expected of Abraham. Isn't that right? It's absolutely true. But at this time, with what Abraham had, 
He was to teach his children to keep the ways of the Lord, to do what was right, and to be judicious in all matters of justice. And notice how the teaching of God's ways to the children was a responsibility given to Abraham, the father. Earliest on in biblical history, this responsibility is laid primarily upon the father. He did not give it to Abraham's wife, Sarah. In the scriptures, dominion falls on the shoulders of the father always, from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation. So please make note of that as we do our survey together. Let's move to another place in scripture that comes further along in God's revelation. Notice the commonality. It's Deuteronomy 6. There are others before it, but the clarity really begins to come out here. It says, that now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Now, what is commanded here is not to one man, as it was in Genesis, but to all the men of a nation, the covenant community. Now, that was the nation of Israel. The covenant community now is the church. Okay, so they're different. These people are the distant grandsons of Abraham, who are given the responsibility to perpetuate the faith of the one true God to their sons and to their grandsons. These were to be taught the word of God themselves. They were to observe and live by the word that they were taught, to fear the Lord their God and to teach their sons and grandsons to do the same. How practical is that? Learn, do, and teach others to learn and do. That's where it's at. That's, that's discipleship, isn't it? Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's discipleship. Teaching to do. Now, the girls weren't excluded from this same instruction, but it's the sons, again, who bore the responsibility of learning and transferring these things from one generation to the next. The word of God was taught to everybody, but the responsibility to teach the word was always placed on the fathers. Now, what is stated here has already been stated in part in Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10. But then immediately following this in chapter 6 is what is called the Shema. The Shema. The Shema is a formal confession of faith and a commission to fathers. How important is this confession and commission? Well, when Jesus was asked regarding the greatest commandment of all, he quoted the first part of the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In verse 4, the word here is shema in the Hebrew. It means listen up, pay attention. This is the Jewish confession and commission. The Shema begins with a theological confession. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. He cannot be divided into parts or pieces. He has no parts because he's pure spirit. He's absolute immaterial. There is but one divine essence or substance which cannot be divided, reduced, or increased. 
He is one eternal, simple, unchanging being. Israel had to get God right. If they got God wrong, they had the wrong God. And if you have the wrong God, you are lost. So that's foremost in this Shema. The unity of God is the great confession, just as it is ours. The Shema continues with the responsibilities of the commission. To love the Lord their God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. To keep God's word in their hearts, that is, the word was to be sacred to them and have the greatest priority. And then they were to diligently teach his word to their children. And notice how careful the author is, how careful the Lord is, to prescribe the details here. When you're sitting in your home, during the activities of the day, at night, when you lay down, in the morning when you get up, the word of God was to totally saturate the family. The, the fathers were to believe this creed and they were to live by its commission, but a major part of the commission was to teach the children the confession and to train them to live by the commission. And that commission has everything to do with multi-generational faithfulness to God. Amen? And then we have this frequency, as we've already mentioned in the instruction, sitting in the house, walking along the way, laying down and rising up. You guys, the scriptures for the people of God was to be the way of life in the family. It was to be the dominant feature in their education. It was prescribing and it was governing their worldview. All of life was to be religious. All of life. And all of life stemmed from the scriptures. God's word was to be their culture. Moses taught Israel that the word of God is your life and it was to be the life of their children and their children's children. And this, this emphasis on multi-generational faithfulness through the teaching of God's word is further addressed in Psalm 78. You'll have to mark that down. I, I didn't want to put 50 slides on the screen. Psalm 78, it says, a contemplation of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You think he's trying to emphasize multi-generational faithfulness by the teaching of God's word? What does he say? Six times in there, we'll pass it to the next generation? that they may set their hope in God, that they may set their hope in God. You know, the author is referring back to the Shema, to the great confession and Israel's commission. As Psalm 145 simply says, one generation shall praise your works to another and should declare your mighty acts. At an old age, the psalmist pleaded with God that he would not let him die until he declared the Lord's strength, his righteousness, exaltedness, uniqueness, faithfulness, and holiness to the next generation, Psalm 71. Don't let me perish until I do this. 
You know, many elderly people wonder about their purpose in life now that they're beginning to slow down. One answer to that question is right here. You are alive. You are alive not for yourself, but for the next generation that is being led astray by its own generation. You're alive to declare the word of God to the next generation, to encourage them, to pray for them. You guys, this generation that's coming up, they need you. They need you. And, and to be honest, I have never looked to my own generation for wisdom, ever, ever. And it's going to be a long time until I do, okay? I read dead people, a lot of dead people, and they've been dead for a really long time, okay? I only read a few guys that are alive. And I've told you before, there's comfort in dead people because we know whether or not if they finished well. If they're alive, we're just, we're filled with anxiety. Are they going to make it without some scandal or some ridiculous thing? So there we have a fair amount of Old Testament instruction. There's much more in there regarding the father's responsibility to disciple their children. But there's one thing you'll never find in all the Old Testament, not in the law, not in the philosophers, poets, or prophets. You'll never find God telling the religious community, the covenant community, to disciple other people's children. It is not there. Enough with the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 4, Paul commanding fathers. He says, you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. In this passage, of course, there's both you know, the negative and the positive instruction. Fathers are told not to provoke their children to wrath or anger. Do not exasperate them, as the NIV says, by being harsh in your treatment of your children, unreasonable in your expectations of them. Now, if you're slippery like I am as a youth, you'll pull this passage out, at least the first part, and never anything above it to uh, tell your parent to leave you alone. Okay, you're, you're making me frustrated. This passage is not to be used against a father when his children get upset because he shut the TV off or asked them to finish their chores or get to bed or do your homework or be kind to your siblings or be respectful of your mother. Children are to obey their parents, listen kids, immediately and respectfully. As the passage before this says, don't make me read it, okay? A child cannot use this verse to tell their parents to lay off when it's just the regular things of life that's expected of them. A child that does not obey his or her parents is just ungodly and rebellious and they should be disciplined for it, okay? If you want to know if a child is a godly kid or not, just look at the way that he treats his parents and follows instructions, okay? The positive instruction in this passage is for fathers to bring their children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, both of these concepts we have to be careful because they're couched, they're couched in the necessity of doing this in the Lord. The word for training, uh, sometimes translated discipline, instruction, or, tr- or chastening is the Greek word paideia. Now, some assume that this word refers to classical education, the classical method of educating children. It does not, okay? It does not. The, the classical model of education is certainly an effective model for learning, but We don't want to spiritualize that method of teaching and say that it's the biblical model, okay? This happens with everything. People do it with diets. Have you ever heard, you know, people do it with gardening. People do it with absolutely everything. They find a verse. There's bread, for goodness sakes, Ezekiel bread. 
It's the worst tasting bread on the planet, but it's the most spiritual bread you could ever make. It's a recipe given in the book of Ezekiel that was made so that Ezekiel would would panic once it got into his mouth and he would get queasy. Don't spiritualize what the scriptures don't. This word paideia has everything to do with educating, disciplining, chastening, teaching, instructing, training. But as Paul says, this paideia, this particular paideia is in the Lord, which has everything to do with instruction coming from the word of God. Not classical works, not mathematics, writing, or science. The phrase, in the Lord, dictates the meaning and the application of this concept, just as we see it elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, Acts 7.22 says that Moses was paideia in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. What was the content of the paideia? It wasn't the classical works. It was Egyptian wisdom. Paul was paideo in, in, in the law, Acts 22.3, speaking of his his youth. So what was the content of his paideia? It was the law of God. So the context always determines what kind of training and education and discipline. The word is elsewhere used simply to mean chastening. And by chastening, the text clarifies that it's corporal punishment. It's, yes, it's spanking. Okay, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, 7, 8, and 11. The paideia of our children, the, the primary source of instruction for them is the word of God, just as it is for us, just as it was in the Shema. Paul told Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's theopneustos in the Greek. It means that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. That's paideia in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good Work, paideia, training, instruction in righteousness. And the source for this righteousness is the scriptures. Now, children, of course, should learn other disciplines such as science and history and English. I still have mixed feelings about mathematics. But they need to live in this world for the glory of God. They need to be good citizens and contribute to the commonwealth of humanity. They need to be a blessing to those around them, but that's not what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 6, 4. If, if we properly paideo our children in the Lord and they receive it, it will build in them a love for God's word, faith in God, love for God, worship of God, service for God, love for people, character, integrity, morality, discipline, and on and on it goes. They will have a worldview that is defined by the Bible and then governed by its principles. We could say they will be all things Christian by way of the instruction of God's word. So so that's the word training in our Ephesians passage. That's paideia. Fathers are commanded to teach the scriptures to their children and how to live by them. There's also the father's duty in the passage to admonish the children in the Lord. This word is translated in different ways also because it has a range of meaning. It's used for instruction, for counsel, exhortation, as well as warning. The word is used to both encourage and reprove, to correct and rebuke. A father's responsibility is actually very similar to pastors. In fact, Vodi Bakum wrote a book called Family Shepherds, which is the word pastor in the Greek. Paul says this. He says, we preach Christ warning 
That's admonition. Admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. It's not just teaching, but it's also warning. A pastor's duty is to warn and to teach from the wisdom of Scripture with the goal of presenting all men perfect before the Lord. Now, perfect doesn't mean flawless or sinless. It means, it means whole. It means complete. Well, this is the, the duty of the father, too. He is to warn and he is to teach his children because the, the greatest goal of the father is to present his children to Christ perfect, well-trained in the scriptures, disciplined in, in the life of Christ, good Biblical instruction includes teaching, exhortation, instruction, also confrontation, counseling, warning, rebuking, and discipline. All of that's included in admonition. Back to Ephesians 6. Again, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, I don't want you to answer out loud, but what does Paul say is the guaranteed result of training and admonishing our children in the Lord. What promises does he make to the parent that does this? He does not make any promises. There are no promises in the passage. There are no guarantees. He doesn't say that if you do this, your children will automatically be saved and live a godly life. That is certainly the hope, but it's not a guarantee or a promise, not in this passage, and not in any passage of Scripture, not even the Proverbs passage. It's a generalization. It's generally true, but it's not a sure thing. The passage is simply talking about the responsibility of the father. Fathers will not be judged by whether or not their children walk with Christ and obey him. Parents will be judged based upon their faithfulness to train and admonish their children in the Lord. Their children will be judged on whether or not they walk with Christ and obey his word. The father is not responsible for the salvation of his children. Okay? He's responsible for training for admonition. The child is responsible for what he does with his training. Understand? We will all stand before God alone. Okay? Last thing. This happens to be the most descriptive and prescriptive passage in the New Testament about family discipleship. Okay? It's specifically given to fathers, just like every other passage in the scriptures. There's others like it, like Colossians 3.21, Hebrews 12, but Ephesians 6 is the most descriptive and prescriptive in the New Testament. Well, we know that the Old Covenant people of God were never instructed to have the community of faith disciple their kids. We find the same thing with the New Covenant people of God. The expectation for fathers in the Old Testament is the same for fathers in the New Testament. It's your responsibility. It's mine, not the church's. But instead of making our children good little Jewish boys and girls, new covenant fathers are commanded to train and admonish their children according to the new covenant. Yes, of course, we teach them the Old Testament, but with the understanding that the Old Covenant itself from Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy has been made obsolete through the blood of Christ, Hebrews 13, 8, and all of the book of Hebrews. We are new covenant fathers, and our children should be primarily trained and admonished from it. So the question is, how do we do this as, as dads? Well, on the surface, we, according to Hebrews 6, we must do it diligently, being intentional, in the morning when possible, in the evening when possible, when you are with them. But more practically speaking, as a family, you should be committed 
to worshiping together in song, studying the Bible together, memorizing scripture together, serving with your family in some capacity. All that it is to be Christian should be incorporated in the training and admonition of your children. So what do I mean by worshiping together in song? Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ, notice that, the word, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And here it is, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This should be taught and modeled to our children in the home under the supervision and example of dads, of dads. I have to confess, worshiping as a family was as strange to me as a football bat, okay? I don't come from a musical background. I do not like to sing out loud. I like to be drowned out by the rest of you people. But the Holy Spirit would not let me use as an excuse. It's not an option for me as a father. It's not about me. It's about my children. It's about my children. It's about obeying Christ. I still struggle with it. But you guys, I'm determined to fill my home with worship. Okay? What about studying the Bible together? Well, I cannot train or admonish my children in the Lord without the word of the Lord. I, mess, I must get the word of God into my children. Okay? <clears throat> now, this changes throughout time as you raise your children, from little ones to larger ones. Okay? Little ones love the narratives. They don't appreciate Paul yet, okay? Paul's systematic discourse from premise to conclusion in the book of Romans is a little much for them, at least in the fine details. You can, of course, simplify as much as you can. But my kids, when they were little, they, and, and of course they still do, but they love the book of Judges, except the end, okay? They love the narratives of scripture. Get it into them. Get it into them and teach the principles found in it and then help them walk it out day in and day out. As your children get older, you can, you can have more demands on them and, and reading and memorization and all of that. Rewarding your kids for their accomplishments. Getting the word into children. We have an interesting example of this in the New Testament. Timothy was instructed in the word of God as a child. Look at what Paul says about this. He says, but as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Guess who taught Timothy the word from infancy? It wasn't his dad. His father was a Greek. And so Timothy was never circumcised as a youth even though he was half Jew. Knowing that his father would not teach Timothy the scriptures as God requires. It was his mother and grandmother. Check it out. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Zetlois, and you, your mother, Eunice. And I'm persuaded now lives in you also. We don't know anything else about Timothy's dad. He may have been dead. He may have been indifferent about the Jewish faith. But what we do know is that Timothy's grandmother and mother, they were not indifferent about the scriptures. They were diligent to teach Timothy the holy scriptures from his infancy. They were dedicated to teaching that little boy. And then years later, when Paul came to town preaching the arrival of the Jewish Messiah, 
and his sacrifice for sins. Timothy, his mother and grandmother all came to faith. Listen, in the scriptures, God places the commission of training and admonition on the fathers, but where a father is indifferent or he's absent, it falls to the mother. And if the father and mother are not in the picture, it falls to the family, and many times it falls to the grandparents. This is not God's ideal, but we don't live in an ideal world, right? But if you're a father who professes to know Christ, please listen carefully, because I don't want to discourage any father. If you're a father who professes to know Christ, let no one, let no one, not your wife, especially not the church, outperform you in the instruction of your children when it comes to the scriptures. No one. God has appointed you and given you authority for this specific task. Be a man and teach your children to live for God. I don't care what our culture says. I don't care what the modern church says. In fact, I'm done with the modern church, okay? The most manly thing, the most manly thing is for a husband to lead his wife and to train his children in the admonition of the Lord. That is the most manly thing that a male can commit to. There's a lot of males out there, but there's less and less men, less and less men. Your highest calling in this life are simple, a simple order. Love God, love your wife, and then bring your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. For these three things, God has both equipped you for and he'll hold you accountable for it. Be faithful. He has other callings for you, but these husbands, fathers, these are the biggies. These are the biggies. And those fathers who commit themselves to the task are greatly rewarded for it as they build relationships with their kids by these primary means. Also, don't forget to memorize the scriptures. If you have young children, the scriptures that they memorize now, they will have them forever. Even if they don't have God's word on hand, they'll have a Bible with them. It's amazing. Teach your kids to serve, to share the gospel, to be bold and faithful. You know, I don't know a single father that regrets being diligent in this regard, but I'll tell you, I meet with a lot of fathers that have many regrets for not. Fathers, bring up your children in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, if this whole thing feels new and awkward to you, as it did to me, as it did to, does to many people, please speak to some of the men in our church who have been diligent in this regard. Speak to John Wiley, to Steve Wold, to Joe Votberg, to Jeremy Corwin, to Tracy Graves. If you want, I can make a much longer list. As I said, our church has the resources and the people of experience. Humble yourself and go to them. Listen, I know fathers are desperate. I see them with their kids. These men have been a resource to me and to multiple other families. Go to them and get equipped. Be encouraged. Whatever you do, make family discipleship the most important thing in your home. Because of the way God has equipped fathers, no one can be as effective as you. No one. There's enough even research from secular societies to demonstrate that. What God has done to the man. Now real quick, back to the conflict in my heart and I will, I'll let you go. The elders have to make some decisions about the education in our church, Sunday school. We have good reasons to adopt a version of it with a particular goal in mind, and we have many good reasons to scrap it all together. We want to do what is most God-honoring, the most biblical, and what will secure the best results. And as we pray and consider this, we refuse to undermine the authority and responsibility of fathers. But at the same time, we cannot allow children to go without discipleship. How do we solve this problem? Please pray with us. Go ahead and stand.
I'll let you go. I brought you long today, but last week you got out 15 minutes early, so we're just making up. If you have questions, please come speak with me. Be mature enough to come talk and not just get angry. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I've said nothing that can't be found in your word. And Lord, I trust you, your wisdom. And I don't want to cling to some church tradition because it's just, it's just what we've done. It's just what is, especially when what is isn't working. But Lord, your design, your wisdom, it always works. And we have clear direction and instruction from your word. And it will work if we commit ourselves to it. And in the process, we get to be faithful to you. Lord, I pray for the fathers in our church who just have not been instructed, have not been equipped, but have been trained by church tradition or, or culture in America. I pray that your word by your spirit would address them individually and instill in them, Lord, a conviction. Like Jeremiah, who thought once that he would not preach the word of God again, but the word began to burn like a fire in his bones. And he had to speak. Lord, I just pray that our fathers would see this as the pinnacle of manhood, to bring up the next generation in the training and admonition of the Lord. Encourage them. I pray that they would be humble and seek out other men who have done this for a long time and done it well, and they would get equipped that they might be a blessing to their homes and pass the faith to the next generation, which our world desperately needs. Lord, I pray that you would give us as a church wisdom in the, in the best way to disciple your people. Lord, without diminishing the authority and responsibility of fathers and without the neglect of children. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys.